Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. We are delighted to be here with the Right Honourable Caroline Flint. Caroline, welcome. Thank you very much, Martin. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Steve, welcome. Good to have you with me. Thanks, Martin, and welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Steve. Great. So, Caroline, could you just start by introducing yourself to our listeners, please? Um, I'm Caroline Flint. Um, I was the MP for Don Valley in Doncaster from 97 uh, to 2019. Uh, I was a minister under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and was a shadow cabinet member for First of Communities and Local Government and then Energy and Climate Change under Ed Miliband. Fantastic. So, Caroline, you're associated with the moderate wing of the Labour Party. Is that fair? Is that sort of accurate? And what, why is that? What sort of led you to be associated with that particular side of politics? So can you, I suppose, talk us through your sort of polit- political personal history? Okay. Well, I suppose if moderate means that uh, you think it's important to win an election and to do that, you need to win the support of a, a broader group of people rather than just in terms of your own comfort zone, then, yeah, I'm a moderate. But when I joined the Labour Party, which was in 1979 as a teenager, um, I was probably, you know, pretty much to the left on a lot of issues of, uh, you know, the mainstream of the Labour Party, particularly, you know, when it came to um, women's rights, um, uh, some of the uh, policy areas around employment rights in particular, but also gay rights and other social uh, issues too. Um, but I joined in 1979. I was doing my A-levels at an FE college. Uh, that brought me into touch with the student union. I think I joined the Labour Club and the women's group on the same day. I was involved in those days, obviously, in 1979 in the 80s, in anti-apartheid and other campaigns. was going on demonstrations and, and all of that. Went to UEA. But I was the first in my family to go to university. I came from a working-class background, but not a very political one. And um, I soon discovered, you know, in the early 80s, um, that um, uh, Trotskyism, uh, entryism was uh, happening in our party. And I suppose having sort of views that, in many respects, as I said, were to the left of many in the Labour Party, but I was someone who also believed we needed to empower. For me, uh, Trotskyism uh, and the entryism that came with it wasn't something I thought should help Labour. In fact, you know, I was strongly of the view that it was destabilising and making Labour unelectable. And being very involved in Labour students, you know, we were on the soft left against, if you like, the young socialists that was dominated by the militant tendency at the time. And we could see what was happening in the youth wings of the Labour Party and was really concerned about how that was destabilising the Labour Party more generally. And we were right about that. Um, I supported Neil Kinnock. Um, and then carried on as a grassroots activist to try and play my part to build the Labour Party that could win an election, as it did in 1997. One of the recent developments in Labour politics has been, I think, a need for uh, moderates to restate and reassert things that were often taken for granted, like the need to win elections. 
and some, I'd say, under Blair, uh, and looking back perhaps at the, the, the Blair government and the successes of the Blair government, we're seeing that the, some people saw that the compromises necessary to, to win power were sort of dirty compromises and maybe unnecessary. So do you think that the, the moderates restating or reasserting their positions, including the need to win power to make change, do you think this could be a good thing in the long run? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's just important for the Labour Party, but I, I, I think it's also important for, you know, general discourse in politics, you know. I mean, you know, no one party has got a monopoly of ideas. And, uh, and beyond political parties, there's lots of other people um, who can offer something to how we resolve the big challenges of our time, whether it's climate change, uh, social care, the pandemic situation we're in and how that's going to affect us for years and years to come. Um, being able to recognise that mainstream moderate politics is important not only to win elections, but actually to try and find some solutions, I think is as important as it ever was. I think the, you know, the wrong view is, is to suggest that somehow being a moderate doesn't mean you can't be radical as well. I don't think the two, um, uh, you know, are diametrically opposed to each other. We won a broad base of support in 97. I mean, to be honest, way beyond our ambitions uh, in terms of the Labour Party. Um, we reached into, you know, every town, every community. We were a one-nation uh, party. But we brought with us support to do things like introduce a national minimum wage, um, uh, tackle uh, policies around gay rights, uh, uh, make sure that we could reduce class sizes, start tackling some of the big issues uh, that have been left um, unattended to after 18 years of the Conservatives being in power. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, when we lost in 2010, there was a division amongst moderates between those of us, and I include myself in this, who didn't think necessarily everything the Labour government did from 1997 to 2010 was as huge a success in every department. But we had enough there to be able to say, look, this is what we were able to achieve. And there was a split between that view and another view, which I think to a certain extent Ed Miliband uh, wanted to do, which was to recast the Labour Party as if that hadn't happened, that that didn't exist. And I think parties who, you know, don't find a way to actually celebrate what they've achieved in power, it, it's very hard uh, to just start from ground zero all over again. And we found that to our cost in 2015, and we found it to our cost in 2017 and in 2019. Well, that seems like a perfect time to ask you about your reflections on the more recent history of the Labour Party, specifically its years in opposition. So how would you assess Labour under especially Jeremy Corbyn, but you touched on Ned Miliband as well, and the place of moderates within the Labour Party as well? Well, I mean, you know, the start of our demise, you know, didn't begin with Jeremy Corbyn. It, it, it started after 2010. And, you know, I've, I've said this, that you know, the Labour I love the Labour Party, you know. I mean, I've been in it over 40 years. But we're not very good at really, uh, when we lose elections, having a proper discussion about why we've lost. Um, uh, it took us, you know, I joined in 1979, it took us 18 years to get back into power. And along the way, you know, there was a certain amount of ignoring why we lost in, in 79 and then 83 and so on. But in 2010, we really didn't have a proper discussion. And I think the sense was, you know, let's move on, um, you know, let's recast uh, Ed Miliband talked about, you know, the next generation, the new generation. Um, 
And during 2010 to 2015, we really didn't manage, despite, you know, the coalition government, I think what it did in terms of cutting way too fast uh, in terms of our economy into services than was really needed. Uh, we didn't win the economic argument. And, and you know, that resulted in 2015 uh, in not only us losing, but obviously our shadow chancellor, Ed Balls, losing his seat. But also along the way, we weren't listening to some of the concerns that people were raising around Europe, around immigration. And you can see, you can absolutely, anybody can see if they just look at some of the results in local elections in the 2014 European elections, how UKIP was filling that space that we were vacating uh, in our Labour heartlands and in Labour areas, um, such as mine, uh, to UKIP. And that was storing up problems for the future. There's no doubt about that. 2015, we lose that election. And, um, you know, again, we end up, uh, with a, a system of electing a new leader, whereby anybody in the country uh, could, uh, for a few pounds, take part in our, our leadership contest. And, and that brought in, you know, a whole host of people, um, many of people who had never really supported the Labour Party, but always thought the Labour Party was the party of betrayal. Um, people to the left, way to the left of pretty much anyone in the Labour Party taking part in in that leadership contest. And as a result, and as a result of a number of MPs nominating him, some of whom were moderates, I have to say, um, you know, Margaret Beckett, Neil Coyle, others, Rishnara Ali, they all nominated Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and that we ended up with him as leader. And I would say that, you know, it's not that everybody who supported Jeremy Corbyn uh, were terrible people, but there were a lot of people who did. You saw this as an opportunity not to win elections, but to control the Labour Party, to seize the Labour Party brand. And the last four years have been a nightmare, quite frankly, for the Labour Party in terms of constantly um, uh, creating a situ situation more and more for more people not to vote for us. And the Labour supporters in my area, you know, I mean, you know, those working class Labour voters, they, you know, support left wing economics. They support spending, you know, um, to you know, achieve social justice to improve the chances of every child in school so we have a decent NHS fit for everybody. But they are also patriotic, they back strong defence policies, they support law and order, um, and they clearly, uh, in increasing numbers, were becoming more sceptical about the European Union and worries about things like uh, free movement and immigration. And Jeremy did not represent any of those values uh, in terms of how those voters uh, really felt and therefore you know 2017 uh, we lost seats in those leave areas in Stoke-on-Trent South in, in Walsall North in Mansfield in Middlesbrough um, and we didn't uh, get back Copeland and those were the warning signs uh, that we should have been hearing not only to be honest the people who support in Jeremy but the moderate people in the party in the PLP many of whom I have are my friends who again over the Europe issue became um, divisive in their approach to understanding why so many of our voters and others voted leave. So we'll come on to Brexit later on, but there's just something about the Labour Party and politics more generally, I think, that does touch on Brexit. So you've, you've talked about UKIP filling a space. Mm. Do you think that immigration and potentially Europe as well was a failure of moderate politics because there was an awful lot of people saying... These things are important to us. We feel unrepresented. We feel left out. Yeah. And yet, especially on immigration, moderate politics has been 
pretty much unable to deal with the issue of immigration. It has been sort of partly polarised and partly refusal to engage with the topic at all, really. So do you think that that is a sort of a failure of the Labour Party specifically and moderate politics more generally? Uh, yes. Um, look, they're, they're, they're left and right-wing countries around the world, parties around the world, you know, support some form of immigration policy. This isn't, you know, it's not... It's not left-wing not to have uh, an immigration policy, you know. Um, and I think where some of this became more of an issue is that when we had the financial crash and everything, you know, that, that brought with it for people, um, in some ways that revealed or unmasked some concerns about immigration that in some ways had been masked before the crash. Um, and suddenly those cracks uh, were revealed. I think, too, that there was an assumption by, you know, many in my party and in, you know, the leadership of our party, you know, under Blair and Brown as well, that when we talked about, you know, the net benefits um, of migration or being in the European Union, that we seemed to think that everybody was sharing in those benefits. Um, And the truth is, in in many of our our small towns, our post-industrial towns, where there had been very little migration at all compared to London and other cities where it had been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, what they were seeing was quite dramatically over a short period of time, often a local factory, the one factory in you know, a ward in Doncaster, seemingly overnight uh, suddenly recruiting a whole load of people from Eastern Europe. And in many respects, I would say dubious recruitment practices in terms of agencies um, solely recruiting in some of those towns in some of those Eastern European countries to come and work in the UK. And when you've got a sort of low skill uh, and pretty low paid economy, um, then that is felt by local people and it is very visible to local people about what's going on. Now, that isn't the same experience in London. It may be not the same experience in university towns um, and more prosperous parts of the country. But it was certainly being felt and you could see that in the fact that, you know, in 2014, uh, UKIP won the European elections. Uh, The warning signs were there for everybody, and it's why Cameron chose to have a referendum on Europe. He saw it, and he thought that was a way to, you know, stave it all off. Wrong he was. But we weren't listening in the Labour Party, and I think, you know, um, uh, you know, we just wanted to steer away from it. We felt uncomfortable about it. And it's always seemed to me that, you know, we need to have those conversations, because if we are ignoring those concerns... And some of them, you know, are real concerns and we should have done something about it in terms of how employers were using that easy source of labour. We didn't. And therefore, we end up vacating the ground to those on the right, um, not only only right in terms of the Conservatives, but way to the right of the Conservatives as well. And that is our fault. We have to take responsibility for how we created that environment. So do you think then the, the, the left put a, a sort of pursuit of like a liberalism, a sort of metropolitan liberalism and wanting to be seen to be sort of open and welcoming to people from different countries and different cultures. Did they put that above a concern with, with jobs, with skills, with livelihoods and those sort of bread and butter issues that are the day-to-day that underpin most politics most people's lives? 
Do you think yeah. that, that sort of explains it? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think the, light, uh, the, the view of those in our cities is, is so different um, from what happens on, in our, many of our towns around the country. I mean, even in Yorkshire, you know, 5 million-plus population, um, you, know, you know, the life and the sort of politics in, say, Sheffield, York and Leeds is world away from uh, the small towns across Yorkshire and, and the Humber, but it actually is those small towns uh, in, in the north and, to be honest, in the east as well and elsewhere outside of the metropolis that is, that is less multicultural, that is, um, you know, hasn't got all the benefits of what a big city can bring, uh, the bars and everything else, has not got the range of jobs um, that include those jobs that pay very well, the university, ta- you know, the universities and all the jobs that go with that. And I do think, you know, when I've spoken at events, you know, actually I did an event in, for, in Camden for Keir Starmer not long after the 2016 referendum. It was called the Big Camden Debate. And there was I with Polly Toynbee and, and I think Stephen Bush and, and Keir. And to be honest, you know, when I was trying to draw a picture of the, you know, the different sort of opportunities we have, the different transport infrastructure we have, you know, in the area I represent compared to in London. People were coming up to me afterwards and said, we had no idea. And that's the truth of it. People have no idea about, you know, how some of these um, policies, how some of these liberalism, how some of this sort of view, liberal view does not really, um, uh, does not really feature uh, in the lives of many ordinary families up and down the country in these smaller towns, these non-university towns, these non-city towns, um, these less ethnically diverse towns. They just haven't got a clue. So you talked about, or you mentioned Sir Keir Starmer. So Labour is now under new management, according to leader Sir Keir Starmer. So do you welcome this new leadership? And what steps do you think Labour needs to take in order to become a, a viable electoral force again, having lost so heavily in 2019? Well, I, I do very much welcome um, that uh, we do have a new leader and, uh, and one who recognises that, um, you know, the politics that Jeremy Corbyn espoused, which I think were based on always having dividing lines, um, you know, never um, always trying to sort of it's them and us situation and by, by that them and us with the Conservatives or them and us with anybody else. Um, and, and that, you know, and even to the extent that it was a them and us in the Labour Party that um, I'm afraid the politics of Corbyn um, seemed to support. Um, I'm really glad that that is over. But nobody, you know, I'm not under any doubt, I don't think, I hope Keir isn't either, is that we have, you know, we haven't got just a mountain to climb. We've got a range of mountains to climb. Um, he has sort of shown himself uh, to be saying the right things, I think, to show he is patriotic. He's certainly more presentable and credible um, than Jeremy Corbyn. And I think people can imagine him as prime minister. Um, he has accepted a Britain beyond Brexit. He has pledged not to run a campaign to rejoin the EU. I, I wish he'd said that before the 2019 election. Um, and he's chosen when to, uh, uh, you know, find consensus with the government, which I think in this pandemic situation is right, but also when to choose to um, uh, hold the government to account. But I think at the moment, the truth is, is that people completely understandably, uh, their lives are so dominated by this pandemic ruled in. Um, most people are just, I think, trying to get on with that and deal with that. And it's going to be a while before Labour is really being listened to 
in any meaningful way. What he's got to do, I would suggest, is be ready for when that moment comes. And I think that has to show that, um, you know, we are going to try and rebuild those relationships, um, not only with our heartland areas and, and the so-called Red Wall Sea areas and the Labour votes and that that we lost to the Conservatives uh, in 2019, um, but we're even going to have to go beyond that to those Tory marginals that, you know, we didn't win in 2015 or 2017 or 2019. And that is about a broader appeal. Um, and that's going to be a task for him because we still have in our party um, those people who came with Corbyn or those people who were stirred by Corbyn who are already uh, picking fault with him and what he's saying, that he's not left-wing enough, um, uh, that he needs to fight with the Tories every single day. I, that is not going to work for Labour, and he's going to have to show himself firm and strong to deal with that element in our party. Steve, did you want to come in on something? Uh, yes, please, yeah. Um, Caroline, I've, I've got a sense of a perception that um, Keir has... Um, sort of rather smartly avoided certain issues, whether it's Brexit or others you might sort of um, package as identity politics issues. Mm. I wondered what your thoughts are on, like, is that a smart strategy? And do you think at some point he's going to have to actually wade into them, um, you know, when, when the time is right um, with a kind of narrative? Or do you think he can ignore it um, as best possible until, uh, I guess, until the next election? I mean, look... If, um, if we weren't dealing with this terrible COVID situation, then clearly, you know, Brexit would have been much more of the, you know, debate, the public debate um, after the election. And, um, and probably Labour and Keir would have been put more on the spot. I mean, if I think back to just over a year ago, um, before we went into the general election, the, the, the wave of noise around, you know, saying no to no deal, um, you know, can't trust any deal, Boris isn't going to come back with a deal, anything he says you can't trust, you can't support anything. I mean, the wave of noise within the PLP um, um, in, in relation to that, but also all the groups outside the People's Vote campaign and all Best for Britain campaign, all of this lot, was absolutely um, deafening. I mean, there's a bit of that going on now, but it's silent. It's silent compared to a, a year ago. And, uh, and in some respects, I think, you know, you know Keir must recognise that, um, you know, there clearly is not an appetite for the public at all uh, for more prevaricating, more trying to, you know, stop any deal or, 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 or use no deal as another pretense to try and just um, stop Brexit. We are leaving the European Union. And, uh, and he clearly has accepted that. So he doesn't have to say very much at the moment. And, look, I, you, know, you know, we might get more into this later, but, you know, as and when um, we get to the point of transition, I, I, I think it's going to be really quiet. What is important, I think, down the road is that he starts to shape um, a vision of what sort of economy we need in the UK. Um, not only to a post-Brexit economy, but also one that is clearly, well, I say post-pandemic, we're going to be living with this for years. Uh, what sort of economy we should see? What have we learned from this pandemic, actually, I have to say, uh, about our country, around health and about inequalities? And, you know, now is the time when, to be honest, you know, nobody's really listening to Labour. 
it's not they shouldn't you know, say what they need to say, but there isn't really a great hearing. And that's nothing to do with Keir. It's just the nature of where we are in the political cycle, the parliamentary cycle and everything else that's going on. He's got to be ready to answer those questions down the road, because what is very different from what we've dealt with in the past is compared to 2010 to 2015, when austerity was the word, uh, we now have a Conservative government spending money hand over fist. Uh, to um, deal with the situation we currently find ourselves. So the usual arguments about, you know, you're not spending enough, there isn't this, there isn't that, um, aren't going to fly in the same way as they have done in the past. Okay, so let's move slightly beyond the Labour Party into something that you've you've touched on a little bit. So is there a north-south political divide? And what would you like to see done to address it? Um... I think the political divide is much more, more between actually cities, university towns, more ethnic diverse towns and small towns. I think that's, you know, quite a big political, the big political divide. I mean, Labour's, um, you know, uh, control over cities has just got more and more um, uh, dominant over the last 20 odd years. Um, it's actually in the small town areas that we've been losing support and you know that's not only as we've seen in 2019 in, in our red wall seats but we weren't recouping uh, our our support that we had in 97 that we lost in 2010 in those seats that then became tory marginal the uh, tory marginals um we haven't done that what i think there is though when we talk about the north and south there is a massive regional um economic imbalance um that has to be addressed um, and, um, you know, one of, the, one of the aspects of having the energy and climate change brief, which I, I really enjoyed, was when it comes to energy and actually tackling climate change, there's real opportunities for um, using that to rebalance our economy because parts of our country, in the north but also in the east as well, but outside of London and the southeast, there's massive opportunities for manufacturing, for renewable energies, for nuclear um, power as well um, that can speak to a, a, a better economic future and for me that's that's part of what we have to address when it comes to uh, north-south divides and regional economic imbalances how do we you know give those areas of our country the sense that they are all part of the national endeavor they are all part of an economy that is working for everybody uh, and they've got a stake in and I think you know that has to be something we have to uh, really assess how we're going to move forward on that in the future. So this this government, this Conservative government, have spoken quite a lot about levelling up. So your experiences as an MP, as the Minister of State for Yorkshire in the Humber in the last Labour government, and the Shadow Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, what more do you think the levelling up, what form do you think it needs to take? And how likely do you think one are the, both of the parties to be able to, to do it? And how do you create a sort of centre ground and a coalition of the willing to be able to deliver that? Um, I think part of it we're going to see is, is more opportunities for mayors, regional mayors, to take play more of a role. I think I would like to see um, more of the powers that um, the mayor in London has um, devolved to other parts of uh, England, so you can make they can actually do stuff. 
Um, I mean, I think one of the problems under the Labour government was that when it came to regional devolution, we didn't really have a vision of what sort of power would go with that and what sort of resources would go to that with that. And as a result, it never really caught anybody's imagination. Um, so I think that would be helpful. Um, and it's no bad thing, actually, for Whitehall and for governments to, you know, um, uh, devolve some of those powers to share the responsibility in all of this as well. I don't think that's a bad thing either. But I do think there has to be a, a real hard look at um, infrastructure. And, um, of course, we need some of the big projects uh, that, um, uh, you know, do deal with our transport, lack of transport infrastructure um, and other um, power, energy, supply and all of that. But I think there has to be within that infrastructure programme uh, something that speaks to some of our, our smaller areas who always feel that they see these billion-dollar projects, billion-dollar projects, billion-pound projects, um, but they, don't, they can't get a bus to the, you know, or get transport to the nearest city to get to work. Um, there has to be that mixture and balance within this uh, to allow everyone to feel they're sharing. I think skills um, is still something we seem to be poor at as a country, not only in terms of um, people coming, young people coming into the job market, the skills they need for the future, but also retraining people. Um, so that, you know, we, you know, they've been talking for ages about nobody can rely on one job for life, but we are absolutely core in retraining people when they're in work to be able to move into other forms of work. Other countries are much better at doing that and, and we should be able to do that as well. And the third thing I would say is that for our towns, um, I think manufacturing could be something that could be a real game changer. But again, we have to, you know, we have to really look seriously about how do we make it, you know, profitable for um, companies to manufacture goods and sell them overseas. Uh, often a strong pound works against that. But also uh, we don't find ways to actually boost manufacturing in the way that other countries like Germany and France do. And, and you know, if there's anything beyond Brexit is, you know, being able to do that in a way that makes a difference. And that is about infrastructure, is about skills. But it's also about making it profitable for, for manufacturers to be able to um, make their way and employ more people. Um, and climate change, you know, it is about the polar bears. It is about um, uh, the ice flows and everything else. Absolutely important. But we should make sure that on climate change, we show that actually that does not mean that it's only a small group of people who can benefit from that. The exciting aspect of climate change is we need, you know, the type of housing we have for the future. There's all sorts of jobs in that for everybody in terms of energy, in terms of transport. There's huge range of jobs in that, ranging from people who have a PhD to someone who just leaves school that we can offer something to. And importantly, it, it's something that doesn't just apply to, the, the, to London and the South East. It's got real traction elsewhere. So those are some of the things I would be doing and, and to try and re, rebalance our economy and with that rebalance our social sense of purpose. Can I just say that a, a Labour Party or a manifesto based around buses and skills is absolutely music to my ears. <laughs> And we'll come on to climate change now, and I completely agree with you. And I, I've long thought that it's a real missed opportunity when people talk about climate change in terms of, like you say, polar bears and ice caps, but not about, you know, kids 
lungs and the health of the people around them, the air you exactly. breathe. Exactly. And Martin, can I just say something else about the buses? Uh, one of the things I, I've been thinking about as well recently, and, you know, and the other thing is I, I don't think it's, you know, it's no point constantly having an argument about, oh, we hate London and this sort of thing. I mean, what we want is more of what London's got <laughs> in terms of investment and everything else. But, you know, you have to say to yourself, if you live in London where public transport is pretty much 24-7 now, which is amazing, it's absolutely amazing, and, um, and I don't know whether it's going to stay by this, but actually relatively cheap tra- transport, you know, um, young people can travel, I think, free. If you're 60, you can travel free on public tra- uh, transport. But if also you're a minimum wage worker, you can relatively cheaply, you know, get across London to your work and still have enough with other support, tax credits or what have you, uh, to make it worthwhile. But if you're on a minimum wage in, in, say, you know, Doncaster and you're travelling to Sheffield or you're having to travel to York for work or whatever, transport's hugely expensive. And I'd love someone to do some re- re- research in the, you know, the variations between how much of someone's pay packet on a minimum wage it costs to get to work in, in say, Doncaster to Sheffield or whatever compared to, say, in how they travel in London. These are some of, I think, the crunch issues. And this is where it makes a real difference in terms of how you encourage people um, to work because you've got to make it work pay. You've got to make it worthwhile. And these transport inequalities just are so apparent outside of our cities for people living in towns. I think that's an excellent excellent point as well but so let's move on to um to climate change so you touched on it a bit and you've you've talked about your um your experience covering energy and climate change for the shadow cabinet your time in there so how do you think that you could build a coalition to bring about the sort of action and change that's necessary you touched on it a bit, but maybe you can yeah 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 i mean i think it's look in 2000 i think was it 2008 i mean we had the you know first climate change act and, and and you know credit to ed miliband he was the secretary of state at, at that time but i think off the top of my head i think there was a handful of mps who who voted against that that act and probably compared to many other countries you know in the european close to us in the european union we had a unity in terms of recognizing uh, the challenge ahead of us I was very disappointed in, um, you know, the period between 2010 and 2015 that some of the things that we were trying to achieve um, were allowed to fall by the wayside. So, for example, when I was Housing and Planning Minister, um, you know, I oversaw zero-carbon homes. We were working with the industry, with, the, you know, the housing developers, the construction trade and everyone else about, you know, target of 2016 to have, you know, zero-carbon homes or work to get there. I mean... You know, that target was scrapped um, by David Cameron. So we're now in a situation where, um, you know, Boris Johnson has said, you know, it's really important. We've got this, you know, target of the 2025. We want to try and, um, you know, to get to uh, net zero carbon. But we really have, you have to have practical policies to get there and understand the enormity of the challenge. So, you know, the government are saying, you know, new homes need to be carbon ready by 2025. Um, but we are having new developments being built all the time uh, that are missing opportunities. So I, I do think, um, you know, this is an area 
like other areas like social care, that we really, it's not that different parties can't have different ideas, but I do think a coming together on this is absolutely vitally important because underpinning this is, is about how we build a new economy, you know, how we make sure that actually we are manufacturing, that we're not, you know, that's why people like Siemens have done well because in the countries they came from, there was an industrial base um, that made them grow. Uh, we could be doing more of this in this country. And, and it seems to me a complete no-brainer um, that, you know, every single day that goes by that we don't find some consensus on this, we are missing opportunities. Um, even if every new home, <laughs> you know, was built as car- you know, carbon-ready, green as you like, we've got all the housing stock that currently exists that needs to be retrofitted as well. So there's going to be, have to be some massive heavy lifting in this. And it seems to me that's only going to be something that can be seen as a, a generational, an intergenerational challenge, a bit like, you know, establishing pension funds, you know, a state pension system, that we can um, make sure that there is some buy-in to from across the party political divide to make it a reality. And, you know, I'm happy to work with people on, on this who are of that mind, but I think it's really important we recognise that this isn't just a sort of, you know, it is about, you know, how our long-term future as a country, about our prosperity and about a country where, you know, there is real work and opportunities in this that everybody can take part in. And then you'll get sign-up. I mean, it is unbelievable to me that new housing developments are being built and there still aren't electrical charging points on them. Um, that seems to me bizarre. Um, and we have to have an approach that is inclusive. Um, there's no point saying to people, get on your bike. Um, if they're getting to work, cannot happen in any other way than going by a car. Um, that doesn't answer the question. And my biggest worry about tackling climate change is that the middle classes and those better off um, will be able to afford to buy all the best white goods that are the most energy efficient. They'll be able to adapt their homes or buy new homes that are fantastic. But it's those people who are poorer or haven't got the means to make those changes who will, will, will suffer the most. And they will feel excluded again and they will feel left behind. And we can't allow that to happen. If I can jump in. Um, of course. Karen, I wondered about your take on Extinction Rebellion, because um, I think we've discussed it on the podcast a few times, and I suppose we were on the fence about whether protest movements like that really raise important issues up the agenda and move things in the right way or kind of create a backlash. And I'm particularly thinking about in some of the places, um, I guess, the smaller towns in England. I wonder how, the, how that's perceived and genuine question. I don't know. Do you think it's... Yeah, yeah. Not? No, I mean, look, I... <laughs> I, mean, I, think there's a, I think there's a role for protest and I think there's a role for imaginative campaigns uh, around different issues. I've been involved in a few of them uh, myself o- over the years. I think when it gets a bit ridiculous is when you do things like shut down public transport when people are trying to get to work. I, I don't get that, really. Um, I don't think the sort of scenes in a pandemic of, uh, you know, people blocking, you know, roads so ambulances can't get through, you know, really helps to win people over to your cause. Um, and I think, thankfully, from what I've, I've read and heard, there are people within Extinction Rebellion over, since the last, you know, a round of protests, which sparked a lot of opposition, I have to say, and, and concern, 
there seems to be a, a, a you know a readdressing of their tactics and how you know how they're going to operate you know and I think that's right um I was when I was doing the energy and climate change brief I mean you know sometimes when I would listen to some people you know involved in green politics um they were very you know they were very punitive about the whole thing and you know when I would explain that you know some of the people who pay the largest energy bills are living in the, you know the worst type of housing the most inefficient types of housing when it comes to you know insulation and saving energy but they haven't got the means you know to put that right they're you know they're renting or they may own it but they just haven't got the money to put it right so amongst some people not all thank god but you know amongst some people on in in the green movement they were really disparaging I mean, they really thought that, you know, the best thing to is punish people um, to get them to behave better. And I think that's all right if you're, you know, living in a nice middle class house and you've got your big income and you can, you know, you can buy the latest electric cars, which you know, costs a lot of money for the average person. Um, it's that it's that sort of like, you know, you know, we'll just bash people over the head until they realise. And and for me, you know, as a someone in the Labour Party, you know, as, as a democratic socialist, you know, I think you have to take people with you and just have to understand that, you know, the middle classes and the upper classes can always pay their way out of any situation, but most people can't do that. Um, and when it comes to these policies, they have to be inclusive. They have to recognise the inequities um, if we're going to be able to move forward and take people with us. And I think there is a huge amount of support across the country for tackling these issues. Um, but you can really put people off if you don't deal it in the way. That's why, you know, again, I basically knocked the heads together of all the big energy companies who were taking the mick out of people in terms of the money they were taking off them for their energy bills. Um, we had to make sure the system was fairer to then get people to hear us on some of these bigger challenges that we all have to face together, and we'll find a way to help them do that. Well, Karen, it's been fantastic to, to talk for so long without mentioning Brexit or the pandemic in any great depth, but I'm afraid we are going to have to talk about Brexit for a little bit. So just to bring this session to a close, you campaigned for Remain in the Brexit mm -hmm. referendum in 2016, mm -hmm. and yet you ended up voting for the government's deal. Mm -hmm. So what was it that led you to go from being a Remainer to accepting Brexit and indeed voting for it in Parliament? Yeah. Mm. Um, democracy and 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 really it's about trust uh, you know we all had the chance um, to make our, our pitch in the referendum of 2016 um, I had had concerns for years about the lack of attention to what was happening in terms of people being um, you know seduced if that's the right word I don't know by um, uh, UKIP um, and others uh, in terms of scepticism about the European Union and of course I think immigration and free movement was wrapped up in all of that but once we've had the referendum um, it seemed to me that you know that was it everybody said this is it this is it once we've decided we've decided Remain was saying that Leave was saying that um, and our job was to basically in the best way we could um, deliver an outcome and for me that was how do we get how do we get to a, uh, a deal? Um, and that would require some compromise and some consensus building. Um, it became pretty clear um, after the referendum, but also in the Labour Party, 
um, after the uh, next sort of, if you like, leadership challenge uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, and certainly after 2017, uh, that we were heading down uh, a much more Remain uh, route. And, um, and, you know, that caused me huge concern uh, because we ended up putting ourselves, I think, on the wrong side of democracy. We weren't prepared to listen. Um, we weren't prepared to compromise. And I said this many times, um, and it's with regret. We ended up with a situation in Parliament where between hardline and remainers and hardline leavers, there wasn't much to tell them apart. Uh, because they were so polarised, um, there was no way to have a, a a real discussion, a meaningful discussion. And the truth is, is that, you know, the Theresa May deal that I, I voted for actually pretty much had lots of things that Labour wanted out of that. Myself and some others had won some concessions around the environment and on working rights. Um, and actually that deal, if we'd got that deal, we probably wouldn't have had a general election, we probably wouldn't have had Boris Johnson and, and therein lies a tale. It's, it's a massive regret of mine that I failed, I, you know, failed to persuade more of my colleagues uh, to recognise that, you know, not just in terms of um, democracy, but also the trust of voters uh, was important to uh, retain. And, and we lost that and we paid the price in 2019. And just out of interest, what would your personal sort of preferred version of Brexit had been if it had been <laughs> purely up to you. In, in what way, Martin? What do you mean? Well, the, so you accepted the result. Mm, yeah. And so it's because we've talked about it a mm, lot on the mm, dish, mm. either on the podcast or sort of between ourselves, how once you, as a moderate, yeah. you accept the result because, as you say, that's democracy and... Uh, that was a very <laughs> clearly expressed will of the, the people in this country. So how then do you try to seek a compromise between accepting that the result has happened, yeah. but it wasn't, nothing was on the ballot paper about what form it would take. Yeah. So if it was purely either, you know, you're the, the leader of the, of Britain, you don't have to worry about Parliament, you, you've got your own sort of, you know, you're the benign dictator, you can do what you want. Mm. Or even mm. you're just putting forward a case that this is the, and you have the power to implement it. What yeah. is the shape of a Brexit that you personally would have liked uh, yeah, okay. at any point, sort of in yeah. the aftermath of it? Yeah, okay. So in terms of what I, in terms of positively what I would have wanted. One was a, 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 obviously assurances that when it came to working rights, employment rights, when it came to the environment, um, that we weren't going to end up with a situation where we would, um, uh, our, our standards, uh, the rights we have, would be diminished by us leaving the European Union. I mean, I think that's really important. Uh, and was something we argued for and actually got uh, uh, compromises off Theresa May and her deal team to that effect. Um, what I don't think, you know, and obviously there's lots of other areas in terms of, you know, how we work and what we do. For example, how we would make sure, I mean, I'm, as an, ex, I'm an ex-home office minister. I used to, my brief was all tackling organised crime, and we all know that organised crime isn't just a national problem. But, you know, how we would have worked in terms of uh, our borders and information to tackle crime that crosses those borders and things like that, that I think would have been, you know, important as well. But 
what what we couldn't do and and some of my colleagues um you know tended to go down this path was pretty much try to recreate us being a member of the european union in all but name so they wanted to keep freedom of movement i mean there was no way that i think based on the outcome of the vote that that was going to be possible um so a lot of them wanted a norway option which i didn't support um uh because basically you know norway has voted twice against i think being in the european union they have this membership where they have to abide by all the rules uh but don't really have any say um and that's not something i thought was um you know something you could sell um to those people who voted uh leave but we just i did vote for a customs union actually when it came to the indicative votes and i think you know when i heard norman on on your podcast i he i think he said something like we lost that by four votes and we lost that because remainers didn't support it they were just intolerant <laughs> of any compromise so i think you have to have a you know um a brexit the reckon it is a brexit you can't have a some sort of shadow um eu membership but also i would have liked to talk more about martin about if we're leaving the european union how do we start addressing some of those um areas that whilst we've been in the european union we've ignored for many years you know our manufacturing decline why is it um that we haven't got sort of the numbers of nurses and doctors um that other countries like france and germany have in terms of proportion to our population why is it so many of our young people um are not having the social mobility or the education or qualifications to be able to take those jobs um that we should be providing for in this country to those who have been brought up here rather than always thinking that we should you know there's always a way to bring people in with those skills from elsewhere and that's not because I'm against migration I'm not I like managed migration but I think you've only got to look at the skill shortages we have in our country and we should be saying to ourselves why on why on earth you know aren't we able to grow our own workforce in this country uh, to meet you know most of the needs that we have in terms of our 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 uh, skill base so again i was hoping that out of this would become greater attention on on the sort of policy areas that we have neglected for a long time now and brexit would give us no excuse to blame europe for or or to mask those problems by blaming europe we'd have to stand on our own two feet and answer those questions ourselves and again that could create a new dynamic in politics and discourse which would be for the good Steve you wanted to come in yeah um can I I'd really struck by what you said about not being able to persuade um different colleagues of your kind of position on Brexit and I suppose from our point of view we probably on this podcast were rather in agreement with you but I remember being so surprised that more MPs weren't kind of accepting the result and looking for a compromise and to move up on in all the ways you described do you have any sort of theories as to why or insights as to why people were so um to entrenched in either camp or I suppose we're talking predominantly about the remain camp in this case yeah yeah uh, look, i think it's i think there's lots of um different reasons um i mean and and there's some things that have got nothing to do with brexit uh, that are operating here as well um if you were if you were in the in on the sh- in my, if i just talk about the labor party but i think it it, it to a certain degree it, you know it's reflected in some of the other parties as well but if the labor party if you were on the shadow front bench in whatever capacity um and you enjoyed doing that 
um, then you're not going to want to, um, you know, vote against the established line because then you lose your job. Um, if you're in a if you're in a seat which actually, when you're looking at it and coming out of the 20, 2017 general election, you only had to look at um, uh, how UKIP had made advances on Labour votes in a number of our seats, that a lot of MPs with majorities of less than 10,000 Labour MPs uh, were, and were probably thinking, I'm not going to get elected at the next election if it comes soon, um, i.e. before uh, uh, Brexit is resolved. And therefore, do you know what? I'm going to lose anyway. Um, I'm either going to stand and lose or I'm not going to stand. So I'm not going to make myself unpopular here by, um, you know, going against the party line. And you can't underestimate the pressure um, that there does, you know, the wraps around all this uh, from the whips and from other colleagues um, when you're facing this sort of um, big decision to not only go against the party line, but, you know, vote with the in the government of the day on, on this particular issue. So I think there were lots of things going on. I think there were MP leave seats uh, with bigger majorities, um, 14,000 and more, who probably also thought, it's going to be tough, but I'm not going to lose. Um, and therefore, I don't have to um, be part of this discussion either to try and rally people around. But it is a huge... It is a tragedy um, because... Um, we had more Labour MPs in leave seats than Remain. Um, and we should have been able to galvanise that group as a force. But because of um, political factions, uh, because of personal reasons for not wanting to be unpopular and, and all of that. Um, and I think if you hadn't got any, for want of a better phrase, skin in the game, if you weren't standing in the election or you just had given up that you were going to lose, well, why would you... Uh, why would you put yourself in a situation where you were pretty isolated um, from your own party? And, you know, our party, you know, the, the, the amount of uh, the barrage of pressure that we were getting, um, those of us who were deciding uh, to take a different course on this, um, particularly some of my colleagues who did campaign for Remain, like Gareth Snell and myself and a few others, um, was really hard. It was really difficult, really, really difficult. Um, and I think unless you've got, you know, pretty, you know, you're resolute about what you're thinking about and um, it's hard to take that pressure, very hard. And then, of course, I think the other thing is, is that politically, I think amongst some of um, the very, very strong Remain support, they saw this as a dividing line with Jeremy Corbyn's supporters, which they could exploit. Is it naive of me then to think that our politicians should put the national interest first and that the national interest is to not seek to overturn democracy because whatever you think about the um, the particulars of the Leave Remain referendum, uh, the uh. bigger issue is that democracy must be defended and embraced at all times. Yeah. And that the other aspect of the national interest is ensuring that the best best outcome from a Brexit process, which, I mean, did it ever really look to me not that it was going to be overturned? Like, it always seemed to me like yeah, it was going yeah. to happen and that yeah. surely the best outcome is to try for our politicians to reach yeah. a consensus to lead yeah. and to um, 
to, to bring about the best possible outcome for the whole country, which in my eyes was a moderate sort of deal on Brexit that brought together parts yeah. remain and parts of leave. But is that just impossibly naive from someone who's never been elected to anything? No, I don't, I don't think it is naive. I, I, think, um, I think politics let the country down on this occasion. And, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I always thought, you know, we should leave with, with, a, with a deal, and I would try and help to make that happen. Um, my frustration and, and concern was that a number of the people who, who hid, hid behind the slogan, uh, you know, no to no deal, were really not wanting any, any deal at all because they didn't want to leave the European Union. And a lot of the machinations that went on, the parliamentary manoeuvres, were about, um, you know, just trying to frustrate the process. I, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think that, you know, when Theresa May couldn't get a deal through and then she was um, basically had to stand out, was got rid of, um, I think some people didn't quite believe that was going to happen. Um, and then, of course, you know, Boris Johnson got elected. They didn't think he would come back with a deal, and then he did. And to be honest, I think the sort of Remainers were sort of wrong-footed on this. When I say the Remainers, I mean, you know, the, you know, lots of people who, you know, across other parties that voted, you know, Remain were trying to get a deal. But, I mean, those who were, you know, ardently working against the government, um, I think that they just never thought it would ultim- ultimately end in an election at the end of 2019, and that Look, I think it was after December 2018, um, you know, I was hearing that actually in my own party, um, the leadership was actually surprised by how much Theresa May lost, May lost her first deal. But then, of course, the, the, you know, the, the extreme Brexiteers on the Tory side put paid to her on that. But I do think that there were a number of people in the Labour Party who had hoped that some of, there would be enough of some of us to help get the deal over the line so it could be put to bed. So we could be, you know, hauled out as the terrible people, uh, but then we'd move on to other issues on another day. And, and politics left, let the country down on this. And, um, and, and with it, trust, trust, I think, was lost as well. Because by the time we got to 2019, not only were Leave voters livid, I think a lot of Remain voters were very frustrated as well. Um, you know, by the lack of cooperation in Parliament and willingness to try and sort something out. And, and they were angry too. And so that phrase, that slogan of get Brexit done uh, was about ending it and sorting it out. And I think, you know, you know that resulted in the results we, that we saw. Um, there wasn't an exodus of people from the Tories to the Lib Dems or to Labour. Um, that didn't happen. That didn't materialise. What happened was people voted to get it sorted. And, and let's see. Let's see what happens at the end of this year. I think there will probably be a deal. If it's not one deal, there'll be a series of mini deals. But I think we'll, we'll move on. So let's just close by getting your thoughts on the prospect of no deal and how Labour should respond to that politically, that maybe... Some have said that some of the um, sort of political theatre that's ongoing between the UK government and the EU at the moment is about cover for a strategic retreat mm. whereby Johnson and the government, they talk tough and that gives them cover with their Leave supporters in order to secure a deal that is actually not as good as they 
say it is and would like people to believe. Yeah. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think, well, what generally do you think about No Deal? And as I say, how should Labour respond to it or politically? Well, I mean, as, as, a, as we've seen over the last few years, there's a lot of theatre involved in this and there's a lot of public sort of, you know, grandstanding and, you know, and language that is used. But I think, you know, behind the scenes, um, you know, there's probably more sort of, you know, down-to-earth practical discussions going on about what should happen. And, and it may be that, you know, when we, you know, get to the end of the year, that there are some matters that aren't quite resolved and, and there'll be a bit more time allowed for that. But I, I, I do believe that um, there will be um, a, a deal. Um, I think that, you know, where the European Union is now, um, and we're all obviously, again, going back to the pandemic situation, I mean, people have got enough on their plate. Um, um, if there wasn't, you know, enough of a reason for um, uh, a deal to be struck uh, last year um, that um, could make sense of a sort of a different, but a, a, you know, a constructive relationship with the EU and the EU with the UK. It's even more so now. And look, you know, the EU has got enough other problems going on within the member countries who are still there, whether it's Italy or elsewhere. Um, so I think um, it's going to be in everybody's interest, and I think that the likelihood is that a deal will be forthcoming. But there'll be, you know, look, any any treaty, any situation like this, there'll be, you know, how it's presented, you know, is going to have to sort of show that nobody's lost any face. Um, that, as you said, there's enough in there to keep, you know, the European Brexiteers, the ERG happy, and the Conservative Party. And enough there to sort of not be completely um, uh, irrational and irresponsible about where we have to cooperate. And I think that would be forthcoming. And as far as the Labour Party is concerned, I imagine if um, uh, whatever is the outcome, um, uh, the Labour Party is just going to have to accept it because there's nothing else they can do. They have to accept it and uh, and we'll have to deal with it. And, um, you know, there's so much more that we all need to be talking about in terms of how we're living our lives, how we're going to work in the future, um, how we need to deal with those um, vacuums in the way our economy worked under the European Union. And if we don't do something about it, we'll continue to operate going forward um, to allow enough space for political discussion and different points of view about how to fix that. Um, I think for the Labour Party, I think by the time we get to the next general election, I hope they'll just be thinking we can move on to other territory and, and, and Brexit is behind us. And that certainly seems to be the indication that Keir is wanting that. Well, that sounds like a fantastic place to, to end it. So, but Caroline, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. I've really enjoyed this. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, um, and speak to us and give us the sort of, give us your insights on so many different things. So, Steve, while you're here, thank you very much as well to you, as always. And Caroline, once again, thank you very much. And um, I hope you as listeners have enjoyed this. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you very much and goodbye. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. Go and get a uniform, report to the scrubs. 
Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt Try it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, from Illinois to California on 10 American Presidents, from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast and wherever else you get your podcasts. <laughs>